Why do I get stuck on the negative? And what can I do about it? Have you ever had this in your life? Things are going really well. Things are going amazing. And life is good. And then one little thing happens. And instead of, there's 10 things that have happened in my day, instead of focusing on the nine, I focus on the one. And suddenly it's got me. Now, psychologists have really brought this into the forefront, and they call this having a negativity bias. That essentially, if you have a meal, for example, and it's breakfast, and you're eating bacon, and it's delicious, and eggs, and it's delicious, and hash browns, and it's delicious, but the pancake is burnt, what do we remember? The burnt pancake. Now, there's all sorts of psychological, scientific reasons I can give you, but the reality is, is we get stuck on the negative, or as I like to call it, we get hooked. We get hooked. Our brains fixate on negativity, and now like fish on a line, do you fish? I don't actually fish, but I get hooked. So I don't have this in common with the fishermen. I have a lot in common with the fish on the hook, right? I get hooked, and now I'm on the line, and now I'm struggling, and now I'm squirming, and now I'm trying to get away. And the problem is, is as long as I'm on the line, what's the issue? I am hooked. The negativity in my life gets me. And I could have all these other things I could be focusing on, but instead, I'm hooked like the fish on the line. Let me give you an example. My daughter just turned four this past week. We had a wonderful day. Don't get me wrong. It was an amazing birthday. This is actually the example of what I'm talking about. So she wakes up in a good mood. And for a four-year-old, that's, that's, that's success in itself. So she wakes up in a good mood, praise God, and now she wears her special birthday dress and her special birthday crown. And there's all sorts of great things going on. And we're excited, and we meet Grandpa, and we get in the car. And now my schedule, because I'm no longer attached, attached primarily to the schools, I have more flexibility, so I can move things away on the day of my daughter's birthday and spend the day with her, and things are going great. And we go up to the best donut place around here. Where's the best donut place? Donut King in Weymouth. And there is a donut with gummy worms and fake dirt on it, and my kids think it's amazing, and it's all going great. And then at some point, like anything, there's one negative. Suddenly the discussion turns about, hey, the coffee's too weak. And on a day where everything's going super well, why are we talking about the coffee's too weak? I'll tell you why. Because even on Ruby's fourth birthday, where she's wearing pink, we're wearing pink, and everybody's excited, it's possible to get hooked. Do you agree? Now... What do we do from there? Again, we're titling this message, How Do I Get Stuck on the Negative and What Do I Do About It? Why? I shouldn't say how. Why do I get stuck on the negative or how? And what do I do about it? Now, one solution is not this. Let's not do this. Sometimes people say, well, then I don't want to deal with the negative at all. I want to pretend like it doesn't exist. I want to just push it aside and just pretend life is perfect. Why does that not work? Because life's not perfect. Because the reality is, is on the day where I can get hooked with the negative like the fish on the line, if I act like everything is amazing and there is no negativity and then something happens, now it flattens me. So instead, there's been a couple researchers who have done really good work. They say this. They say, 
It's not that you want to never have negativity. It's that you want to be honest about this. They say, and this is Susan David and Christina Congleton, and they've put together some work, and I want to show you how this work not only is going to connect to Paul's letter to the Colossians, but it's going to connect to how we get hooked. Here's what they say. They say this. All healthy human beings have an inner stream of thoughts and feelings that include, sorry guys, criticism, doubt, and fear. Did you you hear what they said? They said all healthy human beings. So if you have criticism, doubt, and fear, sometimes we jump and we say what? Oh, there's something wrong with me. Well, no, no. All healthy human beings have these things. The question is, what do we do? So they suggest these four steps. There's sometimes where there's things in culture that are really helpful that fit into our biblical understanding. And I want to show you this does. So they say if there's a negative thing that happens, let's say it's with my sibling. Let's say I have a problematic, emotional, frustrating relationship with my sibling. What I want to do is that I want to recognize the patterns of negativity that I have in that relationship. I want to label my thoughts about it. If I'm thinking, oh, my sibling just gets me so frustrated, I want to label that and say I'm having a negative thought. I want to accept my thoughts, that I have those thoughts, they're part of my relationship, they're part of my pattern, and then I want to act not on my frustration, not on my negativity, but I want to act on my values. Now, as Christians, what we see act on my values really means that I want to be praying. I want to pray. If I'm in that pattern and I'm in that negative relationship and we've got this cycle and I've got these negative thoughts, who am I going to pray for? I'm going to pray for the person that I'm having the negative pattern with. I'm going to pray for myself. And then I'm going to pray for myself again. Is that fair? Now, here's the thing. We're in a book called The Letter to the Colossians. We're going to be in it for about nine weeks. This is week two of nine. I'm going to give you two options today. Every message is about 30 minutes. And so that means nine times 30 is about four and a half hours. Really what we're doing is we're doing one sermon for about nine weeks. It's about Jesus be the center. So I'm going to give you two choices. If you've ever seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia, it's about four and a half hours. If you'd like, we can stay here for the next four hours and do one sermon together, or we'll just do one brief section to the Colossians. Which do we want to pick? We'll take the one brief section. Does that sound good? Now, good. You laugh, and you just imagine what it would be like to hear David talk for four hours. And the problem is, is you were able to actually picture it because you've heard me drone on and on and on. So I want to show you Paul, and I want to show you Saul. I'm going to put up a graphic, and I want to talk about two people. We're in the book of Colossians. If you grab a Bible, it's all the way at the end of your Bible. It's a letter. It's a very short letter. It's four chapters long. And it is written by this guy named the Apostle Paul, who used to have an old name. He was called Saul of Tarsus. I'll talk about that in a sec. What I want you to be super clear about is he is writing in the first century, so 2,000 years ago, He's writing to a small group of early Christians in a church, and here's the thing about it. Look around in this room. 
There's more people in this room than he's writing to. He's writing to about eight to ten families, very small amount of people. He's going to show them how to keep Jesus as the center, despite, and we talked about this last week, cultural pressures and religious legalism. Both are bad. Just simply looking at the cultural pressures and saying, I want to be just like the world. Well, the world's messed up, so that doesn't make sense. Turning and saying, well, religious legalism is the answer, and I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to do this, and that's going to define me. That's not the answer either. We see an author, so the person writing it is this guy, Paul, and I want to give you hope. We're going to talk a lot today about being hooked on the negative. He started hooked on the negative because he started this guy, Saul. Who is Saul? Saul was a Pharisee, a Jewish person, who was in religious leadership, and he had a group of people that he believed were the big problem in his society, and they were the early Christians. And there was this guy, Stephen. And this guy, Stephen, loved Jesus and wanted people to have a good life, and he wanted to serve the community. And Saul and others saw Stephen and said, that's a problem. He had never met the early Christians, but he looked at them, and he said, they're a major problem. He got hooked. And literally, this is what the book of Acts tells us. Saul was one of the witnesses to the killing of Stephen, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Now, I'm going to tell you some good news. If you're finding yourself hooked on negativity today, you're probably not at the level where you're agreeing with the killing of people. But even if you are that negative, it wasn't the end of the story for Saul God worked redemption in his life, and he turned, and he changed. So you may be sitting today and saying, I'm so hooked by negativity that I would actually agree completely with the killing of blank. Now, that's not good. However, God can change your heart. You may be talking to someone or have a relationship with someone who is that hooked. Please remember, Saul doesn't stay Saul. He becomes Paul to the point where the same guy on the left who was so comfortable applauding the killing of Stephen, God works in his heart, and he becomes this guy. He's never met the Colossian church. It's the church at Colossae. He's never met them. He didn't start it, and he's writing to them, and he says this, we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. So how does that guy go from being so hooked to be completely in this other situation. It leads to what I'm going to call a big idea today, and it's for each of us. Am I hooked like Saul, or am I praying like Paul? I'm going to ask you to read that with me. We'll do it in three, two, one. Hooked like Saul, or praying like Paul. And notice it's the same person. We're going to act like they're two people. Saul of Tarsus becomes the apostle Paul by God's grace. And so that means in each of our lives, if you are finding today, and you're saying, David, I am hooked with negativity. It is the force in my life. Thank you so much for being honest. God can work with you. If you're hooked like Saul, you can be praying like Paul. Let's look at a couple of things in the text. So first of all, we're going to look at an idea of life rhythm. Sometimes we wonder about all the stuff and the doings of life. Think about your day for a second. You got up today. Think about the things you don't do one time, but do over and over and over. For example, I'll give you a non-example of what I'm talking about. 
Do you ever feel really guilty with a relationship? Maybe it's a boyfriend, girlfriend, maybe it's a husband, wife, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a friend, and so you give kind of like an apology gift. Like in my family, we call them apology muffins. Like we, we, sometimes I'll do something wrong and I'll say, hey, I should get muffins for the person. So your life rhythm are the actions you do over and over and over, not one-offs. So if one time you give someone a muffin, that's not part of your life rhythm. What I want you to imagine is you're like a percussion, percussionist. Imagine that you have repeated actions in your life. So you wake up every day. That's part of your life rhythm, okay? Because anytime you have something that repeats in your life, it creates a rhythm. And you wake up this morning and tomorrow and the next day. Do you see how it's a rhythm? It creates a pattern. Okay, and then... But here's the thing. What if you have things in your life like this? What if you complain? And so you wake up and then you complain. And then you complain some more. And you complain some more. And it just becomes part of your rhythm. Whatever we do, you can compliment people and can be part of your life rhythm. I'm just an encourager. I compliment people. Life rhythms aren't good or bad. They simply are what they are. So if you are like a percussionist in your life, the actions that you do create a rhythm. I want to show you what the Apostle Paul does for his life rhythm. You're going to see this right at the beginning of this letter. So if you turn to Colossians 1, chapter 1, verse 3, you're going to see four actions that he does that create a rhythm in his life. Here's the first action. It says here that he prays for others. He gives thanks to God. He listens for faith. He listens for love. Let's read what it says. It says this. We always pray for you and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people. Okay, so I want you to pause. Imagine you're living in your life. And so you can say, how does hooked Saul turn into praying Paul. Well, it's not that his legalism about doing certain practices saves him. No. Instead, Paul has certain practices that are, create a rhythm in his life. He's in jail. When he's writing this letter, he's in jail, and he's talking about how he's praying for people. Think of the last time you went through something difficult. We tend to think of me, myself, and I. And then... Who do we add? Myself again. Right? So, you're praying for. You're giving thanks to God. Now, these other two are interesting. Listening for faith and listening for love. Have you ever heard someone tell you something where you actually heard a story of faith? Where someone came to you and said, David, or your name, you're not going to believe blank happened and it's so amazing. And it's about someone's faith. Do we actually listen to those or do we kind of just wait for the person to stop talking and then start talking ourselves? Do you ever have that in your mind where you're looking like you're listening, but you're actually just waiting to say what you're going to say? You wait for their lips to be done moving so yours can start. But when we're listening for stories of faith and listening for stories of love, now you can say, David, um, explain what you mean. Well, okay, do we have Colleen Hoover fans in here? Who likes Colleen Hoover? 
Okay, so a couple Colleen Hoover fans. Now, I was never invited into the book club. My coworkers all last year had a Colleen Hoover book club, and they did not even ask me to be part of it because they knew that I... If you don't know who Colleen Hoover is, she writes kind of Harlequin romance kind of stuff, right? Like... It used to be in the 90s, Fabio was on the cover. Now it's Colleen Hoover. She's a pop culture sensation. Regardless, we have a desire as a culture to listen for stories of love. Are we, as Christians, listening for the right stories of faith and for love to create that life rhythm? Now, I want you to notice in this life rhythm that is happening that Paul always, and we're going to throw this slide up with a bunch of different verses. You're going to notice that Paul always needs more prayer. There was a Saturday Night Live skit that was the defining skit of my generation. And you have Christopher Walken and you have Will Ferrell. And this is not... Um, you may be from the era of the Coneheads. I did not grow up with the Coneheads. I thought the Coneheads were boring and dated and strange. But we had the more cowbell skit. Right? And so what they do is they're all in the studio and they're doing the song, Don't Fear the Reaper. And the joke about the song is that if you listen, there's a lot of cowbell. And Christopher Walken stops and he says, no, what we need is more cowbell. And so at the end of the song, all you can hear is cowbell playing. In our life rhythm, we don't need more cowbell. We need more prayer. I don't have a cowbell, but I got these. If your life, if your rhythm has other things, doesn't have prayer in it. Is that creating a rhythm in your life? Is that part of your life rhythm? Now, here is my question. What repeated actions make up your life rhythm, and how do you feel about it? Are you doing wallowing, negativity, critical spirit, frustration, complaining? Because that creates a life rhythm. Because so often, the whole reason why we're hooked is partly just because of the actions we're engaging in. I want to show you what Saul of Tarsus did. He was legalistic, then he'd act weird, then he'd go after people and he'd stay hooked. And it created this really negative life rhythm. For Paul, he does this instead. What does he do? He prays for people, he gives thanks to God, he listens for stories of faith, and he listens for stories of love. And so if we're finding today that we're feeling really hooked on negativity, maybe the simple thing that God is telling you today is simply, hey, evaluate the things that are a regular part of your life rhythm, and maybe some of them need to go. Maybe there's just certain actions. Like I shared a couple weeks ago how I entered in a season of my life where I got really gossipy. Maybe God is calling you this week to just say, if gossip is a part of my life rhythm, I feel good in the moment gossiping, then I feel cruddy about it, Maybe I just need to remove that from my rhythm and put something else in there and see what happens with the rest of my life, my outlook, my experience. Now, it's not all just practical spirituality. Let's really look at now our centering hope. So you're going to see at the next part of the text, it's really going to show us what we're calling the centering hope. In the next verse, it says this. This is in verse 5. It says, hope of what God has restored for you in heaven, which comes from your confident hope of what God has restored for you in heaven. Now, the Bible is not originally written in English. Is this news to anybody? I often joke about this. It's not. The New Testament is originally written in Greek. So let's see what word originally is here for hope. The original word for hope 
And I quote, is el peace. El peace actually means a centering hope. Now you can say, David, I'm very confused. I'm in church. It's already a stretch for me to be in church. And now you're talking about centering hope, and that sounds religious and strange and contrived, and you've lost me. Okay, thanks for your honesty. Now let's show you how it's not. I want to show you centering hopes that happen in life, because people have centering hopes all the time. The hope is your expectation, present and future. There's things that bring us together. I want to show you something with basketball. I want to show you something with politics. I'll be careful, but I'm going to show you. And I'm going to show you something with education. And again, I will be careful. Let's start with basketball. The Boston Celtics are embarking on a new season. And this offseason, they traded Marcus Smart. They traded Malcolm Brogdon. They traded Rob Williams. And it's all out of a centering hope to win a championship. The thing that brings them all together that they're all hoping for is let's win a championship. Let's bring Banner 18 to Boston. That is the hope, the expectation of the future that could come true now. And that is what centers them and what they're all trying to move forward on. We're going to enter an election season. I'm really sorry, but I don't have the ability as a pastor to just wave a magic wand and say no election season. So it's coming, and we as Christians need to be prepared for it. You're going to see that people on the left, on the right, on the up, on the down, the partisan, the nonpartisan, the centrist, whoever, are going to have a centering hope. What is the centering hope of the election season? The centering hope that people will have is I want my country to get better. I want things to change, to move in X direction, to move in Y direction. When we look at sending our children to school or figuring out options for education, I have so many conversations with families in this day and age where it's no longer one size fits all, but they say, David, my child is in a different place. Okay, so as we're looking for options around education, the centering hope is you take a child who is here and they will be more educated. Are we clear on centering hope? Now, hopefully, pun intended, as a church, our centering hope is Jesus. That's what we would hope, and that's what the Apostle Paul says. I want to be clear about something, though. He's writing to a group of people who are trying to figure out faith. They're trying to live their lives, and they're trying to love Jesus. They face cultural pressure, a lot of it, and they face all sorts of pressure for legalism. And he's saying, hey, have your centering hope on Jesus. Don't worry about the pressures. Don't worry about the legalism. Keep your eye on Jesus. Love your neighbor. Love God. Move forward. Pray. Love your family. But something super important we have to be careful with remembering about Paul is Paul is not selling something that he doesn't have. He's not teaching something he doesn't practice. We need to remember Paul is sitting in a jail cell where there's inhuman conditions. Human Rights Watch would not be happy with the condition of the jail cell Paul is sitting in. There's malnutrition. There's beatings. There's low morale. There's torture. There's all sorts of awful things. And instead of letting that define his life, he has a centering hope of Jesus. So from there, he's able to then tell people about the centering hope of Jesus. We have to remember that. We have to be super careful with that. Now, I have some questions for you. Is Jesus a centering hope of your life? And I, and I, sometimes we do things too quick as a church. I don't mean this church. I mean as the church is, there's Jesus and he has the church. It's the people of God called out from the world. 
the ecclesia. Now, sometimes as the church, we do things way too quick. We say, yes, of course, the centering hope of my life is Jesus, absolutely. Well, okay, so let's slow down. And I'm learning to do this too. So I joked with you that this is going to be a four and a half hour sermon that's going to be done in nine sections. I don't want you to make a decision on this one until the end. But I want you to start today and each day and each week observing in your life. And remember that thing with the Celtics where their centering hope is a championship. Remember that thing with the political season, the centering hope is a better country. Remember that thing with education, the centering hope is educated children. And I want you to start maybe writing it down, saying, hey, uh, I'm really acting like my centering hope is this. This is the thing that I'm all about. Maybe it's Jesus, and maybe it's right now, Jesus is kind of in the secondary part of my life. That's why we're calling this series, Jesus Be the Center, because we're not pretending that everybody's got Jesus at the center of your life. No one is, is want to be part of that stained glass masquerade. Let's be honest. We as Christians don't do a super great job on being honest and authentic at all times. The reality is, is if I put 100 Christians in a room, I'm not going to have 100 Christians who Jesus is the center and hope of their life. It's just not reality. But we're not going to beat ourselves up about it. We're going to say, let's take some time and let's slow down. And if Jesus is a ancillary hope, a secondary hope, a non-existent hope. Jesus is kind of there for me on Sundays, and then the rest of my life is kind of awful, but that's okay because I have Jesus. Well, no. So we'll take time and we'll say, hey, is Jesus a centering hope in my life? If something else is, what comes next? What, how is God asking me to respond? Because ultimately, we gather we read the Bible, we pray because of the gospel. And we throw out the word, the gospel, but I want to end by talking about the gospel. We do the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Sometimes we say this, I'm a gospel-centered person. Okay, that sounds nice. What does that mean? Sometimes we say, I'm a gospel-centered church. Sounds really nice. What does that mean? Sometimes we say, I make my decisions just out of an understanding of the gospel. Okay, sounds really nice, Let's talk about it. Let's define it and make sure we have a shared understanding. Does that sound helpful? Does that sound helpful to walk out of here and say, hey, that pastor kind of ran around on the stage and he kind of had a lot of energy, but what he wanted me to do is he wanted me to look at the rhythms of my life and figure out what's the deal with that. Then what he wanted me to do is take some time and slow down. I don't need more cowbell in my life. I need more prayer. I need to pray about the fact that Jesus may or may not be my centering hope, and then we're going to be clear about the gospel. So let's see what the Apostle Paul says. Again, he's writing to a group of people who need good news. Gospel means good news, and they need good news. They're sitting eight to ten families in a hostile context who cannot stand the fact that they're Christians, who don't understand their faith, who believe in earthquake gods, who believe that if you tick off the earthquake gods, it's going to destroy the city. There's a lot to worry about. There's a lot to fear, and they need some good news. So let's be clear about what the gospel is. Here's what Paul says. This same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives just 
as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. So let's show you a couple things about the gospel. First of all, the gospel is not something that sits here in this room. Okay, Paul is showing us that it's dynamic, that it moves. Watch what he says. This same good news that came to you, so do you hear, it's not just like a piece of furniture. It's not a piece of furniture that's just installed and sticks there. But Paul is saying the gospel dynamically came to you. And now watch what he's saying. Now it's going out all over the world. So I put up a map. If we have a good news that is just for Plymouth, it's not really good news. It's like kind of strange. We'll stay on the previous slide. It's kind of strange. We're not really sure. But what we do know is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is for the whole world. It's not just for me. It's not just for, I always pick on him because it's just right there. It's not just for Tom. Poor Tom. I love Tom. Um, it's not just for John Monet. It's for everybody. The gospel is the good news of Jesus for all the world. We try to make it clear. Perfect God created a perfect world. Sin entered the world. We're powerless over sin. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on our behalf, rose again. Now we have faith. And then we understand that the gospel is not a checklist. It's not like, oh, um, I confessed my sin. I accepted Jesus as Lord. Now I'm going to heaven and now I'm miserable. Because then we're just hooked on negativity. Then we're just saying, I'm no better than that guy Saul who agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. No, what we're saying about the gospel is that it changes our lives. In fact, we've been working on some phrases as a church. I've been chatting with some leaders, and this is a phrase we've worked on. The gospel is how the finished work of Christ saturates my life every day in every way. If I hear about Jesus and I pray and I have this wonderful experience and I go and trash my coworker, that's not, is that the gospel? That's not really good news. That's me being a puffed up religious person who just is annoying. How the finished work of Christ saturates my life. Have you ever had a napkin that gets saturated with water? You can't now remove the water from the napkin. It just saturates how the gospel, how the good news of Jesus totally enters into my life, totally changes me, allows me to not be hooked on the negativity, not be stuck, not be confined to the dark thoughts, but say, wow, God, you have a plan and a purpose for my life. So I want to go back to the day with Ruby's birthday with the coffee. I'm going to tell you about negativity on the birthday. Why would we be talking about weak coffee on a day where there was so much good news? She woke up. She was wearing a beautiful dress. My aunt got me a pink shirt so that I would please my daughter, and now my daughter was all excited because I'm wearing a pink shirt. We had amazing donuts. They're the best donuts around. Have you ever had the Dunkin' Donuts donuts that are, that are frozen and you can tell that they were previously frozen? The Donut King donuts are not like that. There's good news. What else good news happened? The owner of the restaurant, the owner of the restaurant sent us a picture in advance. We were going to get all our family together. And the owner of the restaurant sent a picture in advance to my dad where the tablecloth was a cow tablecloth. And Ruby was all excited, and we were going to have a great time. And then the food was good. And then the time together was great. And then we had a really nice picture. There was a lot of good news. So why would I get fixated and stuck on weak coffee on a day like that? 
In the same way, in our lives, yes, there is amazing news about the gospel. I am, as a person who is a human person, I am a fallen, sinful person. Ultimately, we know, and I'm so sorry, but sin is real, sin is a problem, and just look at the world. There are literally countries attacking each other now. There's actual violence and death and awful things going on. If you ever wanted to live in a time where you said, oh, sin isn't real, I don't know how you can do that in 2023. But there's good news. The good news is Jesus. And that doesn't just mean we check off a box and stay hooked. That means that just like we wouldn't talk about weak coffee on a day like my daughter's birthday, we don't have to be stuck on the negativity. Yes, we can pray for the situation in Israel. Yes, we can pray for things going on in different parts. Yes, we can be praying. We took time as a church family to pray for individual names. We know that there's some negative situations. We know that there's people going through difficult things, but we live with a centering hope. So here is my question for you. And I do want you to answer this one to yourself now. The other one you're going to maul. But am I encouraged by the impact of the gospel? Am I looking around and seeing You know, there's a lot of negativity with the world. Type in stories of Christian hope in China, and you're just going to be shocked by good news. Am I encouraged by the impact of gospel? Am I listening to testimonies of people who says, hey, I was a drug addict, and I was going to die, and it was awful. And then literally in my jail cell, in my recovery house, in the we have a bishop in our, so in our new denomination, we have a former bishop who was in the basement of Teen Challenge in the 1980s, and he was coming off the street, and he's now a bishop because God met him in the basement of a Teen Challenge. He got off drugs. He gave his life to Jesus. He did ministry. He served the community because there's an impact to the gospel. Am I encouraged by that impact, or am I just focused on other things? Because it's really easy. If I get focused on other things, welcome the negativity. Paul wants you to be encouraged. And so that takes us to our big idea, and we keep it simple today. Hooked like Saul, he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've said, wow, I've been so negative that completely with the demise of this person. Okay, thank you for being honest. Or praying like Paul looking and seeing, wow, Jesus can be my centering hope and I can be so excited for the impact of the gospel starting with my life, that I am changed. It's not that I want to whack all these people I disagree with, but I want to be whacked and I want to be changed and I want to understand, wow, if I'm looking in the wrong way, the Old Testament refers to it as people being stiff-necked. If I'm stiff-necked, let's not be stiff-necked and hooked on a line, but let's be praying. So here's my two implications. Band's going to start playing. Prayer team's going to come forward in a moment. They can come forward now. Is Jesus a centering hope in my life? And does my life rhythm make sense with my faith? If you're hooked today, if you're hooked like Saul, if you're in a negative place, the prayer team is now forward, and we're going to invite you to come forward and just be honest about it and say, I'm hooked. I am hooked. And I need to not be hooked. Let's let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your leading.
your guiding. Lord, I ask that you would reassure us of your faithfulness and then allow us to be honest about the fact that we don't need to be miserable, we don't need to be hooked, we don't need to be stuck, but that our centering hope can be you, Lord, and we can see how the gospel changes everything, including our thinking today. Be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.